Well, good morning. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll read from verse 4 to 25. Uh, for those of you who are joining us today, uh, let me begin with the analogy I started with last night. Uh, reading the Bible is like watching a seed grow from seed uh, to mature tree in full flower. A seed, if you think about it, is actually a tiny plant in embryonic form encased in a hard shell. And everything required for that seed to grow uh, to full maturity and to a big tree and full flower is in the seed. The DNA code in the seed is complete, and it's only a matter of time until that seed develops into a shoot, then into a small plant, and then into a mature tree and full flower. And reading the Bible is a bit like that. The early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 3, are that seed. They contain all of the key information, all of the doctrinal DNA are contained in Genesis 1 to 3 for the rest of the Bible story to develop. And last night, we looked at the opening prologue, uh, Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and we saw there a new creation uh, awaiting a Sabbath rest, a new creation awaiting a Sabbath rest. And so today, we continue with the story uh, of the Bible in chapter 2, verse 4 to 25. So let us hear God's word. These are the heavens, uh, sorry, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground, but a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the ground, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedalim and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast 
of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the woman, he built into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let us pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. For we ask it in the name of your Son, our Saviour, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised, world without end. Amen. So Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 uh, begins the next chapter in the story of the Bible. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. This heading uh, occurs throughout the book of Genesis and it helps to structure it. These are the generations of. If you just flick forward, you'll see it in chapter 5 verse 1. These are, this is the book of the generations of Adam, chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah, chapter 10, verse 10. These are the generations of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, chapter 11, verse 27. These are the generations of Terah, chapter 25, verse 19. These are generations of Abraham, uh, chapter 36, verse 1. Uh, these are the generations of Esau. Uh, chapter 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. Uh, seven times, uh, other than Genesis 2, 4, there's that heading. These are the generations of so-and-so. And then what follows is the record of their descendants. The phrase, these are the generations of, is equivalent to saying, this is the history of so-and-so, or this is their story. And the story of so-and-so is really the story of their children. So in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, These are the generations of Adam. And then we don't hear about Adam. We hear about his children. Same in chapter eleven twenty-seven. These are the generations of Terah. And then we don't hear about Terah. We hear about his children, Abraham, etc. Same in chapter 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. And then, well, who do we hear about? Not Jacob, but his 12 sons, and in particular, Joseph. So the heading, these are the generations of, means this is the history of so-and-so. And chapter 2, verse 4, is no exception. Uh, it is not the history of a person, however. It's the history of the universe. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In other words, this is the history of the world. And it's real history because this heading is the same as all the other headings. 
And if we take the other headings as historical references, then this first one has to be an historical reference. So this is real history. But this first occurrence of the heading is rather unique, isn't it? Because all the others are related to people. This is the history of Terah, and then we hear about his descendants. Uh, This is the history of the heavens and the earth. And what are we expecting to hear about? Well, maybe something about the earth, something about the moon or the sun or the stars, something about a tree or a mountain or a lake or even the Garden of Eden. But no, what's the focus? These are the generations of the earth. And then we focus in on one man, mankind, Adam, a representative of mankind. That's the focus here. In other words, the history of the heavens and the earth is the history of mankind. The history of the heavens and the earth is the history of mankind. The story of the universe is the story of man. So what we have here in Genesis 2, 4 to 25, is the beginning of the history of mankind. It's the seed of the history of mankind that will develop and grow into the story of the universe. And I want to look at the beginning of this story in four parts, um, which all together capture the history of the universe in a sentence. So I'm going to build up the story in four parts, and then we're going to come at the end of um, this uh, talk to a summary sentence of the history of the whole universe. Okay, and then we can finish the weekend early and go home. Okay, because if you get the history of the universe, then you've got it. Okay, part one. Uh, God made a man. God made a man. Verses two, uh, chapter two, verse five to seven. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, but a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, these verses at first sight seem to contradict Genesis 1, don't they? Um, It seems that this is different in order to the order of Genesis chapter 1. Robert Dick Wilson, who's the first Old Testament professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, once said, we will not shirk the difficult questions. And this is especially true for us uh, as Christians. People ask questions of the Bible, and one of the questions is about the days of creation. We dealt with that last night. And the second question they ask when they read Genesis 1 and 2 is, Is there a contradiction here? The order in days one to six seems to be that plants and vegetation were made on day three and man was made on day six. But here in Genesis 2, it seems to suggest that God made man before there were any plants or vegetation on the earth. The word bush in chapter 2 verse 5 is not used in chapter 1, but the word small plant is And uh, it's used in chapter 1. So in other words, what happened on day 6 seems to have occurred before what happened on day 3, the making of the vegetation. And the question is, how do we reconcile these different takes? Some people try to reconcile it by 
what's called the literary framework interpretation, where they take out the chronological order of chapter 1 and they topicalize it, and they match day 1 and 4, day 2 and 5, day 3 and 6, and they say, don't worry about the order. It's not trying to give us the order in which things happen. It's just saying God made these things, and it's matching it up topically. I think there are weaknesses in that view. Uh, I don't think the matching occurs exactly. Um, the sky was created on day two, and birds fly in the sky on day five. So that matches. But then uh, the sun was made to fill the sky, and that's day four, and that doesn't quite match day one. So there are problems with that uh, framework interpretation. I think it's better to stick with the chronological order of Genesis 1, uh, which means we have to come up with a, a good interpretation of chapter 2, verse 5. And the key thing is the phrase, of the field. Do you see that in verse 5? And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Just come with me to chapter 3, verse 18 to 19. In the curse against Adam, it says, Thorns and thistles... It shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Now that phrase, plants of the field, is the exact same phrase in chapter 2, verse 5. But the question is, what are those plants of the field? Well, since there is mention in verse 19 of bread, it seems that these are corn plants, wheat and barley, because that's where we get bread from. Now, we know that wheat and barley do not naturally reproduce themselves uh, by seed alone. They require the work of man to plow the soil. So while there would have been isolated specimens of wheat and barley, of corn plants created in day three, there were not yet fields of cultivated corn plants, such as plants of the field. Uh, such plants of the field require the work of man to till the soil. And isn't that what chapter 2, verse 5 says? There were no such small plants of the field because there was no man to work the ground. In other words, corn plants like wheat and barley had not yet been properly cultivated. So when no wheat and barley had yet sprung up, then God made man. Uh, as for the first line in chapter 2, verse 5, no bush of the field... Well, thorns and thistles, in chapter 3, verse 19, 18, are a subcategory of the word for bush here. So one respected commentator, uh, Umberto Casuto, suggests that chapter 2, verse 5, is referring to a particular kind of bush plant that had not yet sprung up, like thorns and thistles. And we know that thorns and thistles, weeds, spring up after the rains, isn't that what chapter 2, verse 5 says? There were no such bushes of the field because the Lord had not yet sent rain upon the earth. When do we get our thistles, our nettles, here in Northern Ireland? It's in the spring when the rains come. In the summer when there's rains, they flourish. Well, so too here. There were no such bushes because the Lord had not yet sent rain. Rain in Genesis is connected to judgment primarily. And so this is a statement about the earth prior to the curse. So, that's a lot of information for early on a Saturday morning. Uh, so let me paraphrase chapter 2, verse 5 to 7. 
when there were no thorns or thistles, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain in judgment, and when there were no corn plants in the fields, for there was not yet a man to work the ground, but a mist was going up from the earth and was watering the whole face of the ground, then God formed the man. In other words, God formed the man before certain kinds of plants came to dominate the world after the fall, plants that only arrive after the rains and by the work of man. So I have spent a wee bit of time on that because I hope you can see that Genesis 2 is not a contradictory account of the creation of the world, but a complementary one. Genesis 1 is a bird's eye view of God's creation week, a new creation entering a Sabbath rest. And then Genesis 2 focuses in on the events of day 6 of that creation week, the beginning of the history of man. Genesis 2, 1 to 3, which we dealt with last night, brought us to the seventh day, the Sabbath rest. But now chapter 2, verse 4 to 25, takes us back a day and focuses in on the creation of man on the sixth day, which brings us to the creation of man, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now this verse brings up another difficult question from which we cannot shirk, and that is, who is Adam and where did he come from? Uh, Did he come swinging out of the trees in middle Africa about 10,000 years ago? which is the current scientific opinion, Uh, not so much on Adam, because they don't even think he existed, Um, but even biblical scholars who try to marry science and the Bible want to say, yeah, that Adam was an ape man, a Neanderthal farmer 10,000 years ago, and God infused his image into him. Uh, God chose him and had a relationship with him. So the question is, is that true? Is that who Adam was in the beginning? Well... Uh, Let's take a look at this verse in verse 7. The word formed here carries the idea of intent. It's used later in the Bible of a potter forming his clay. God is like a potter. He gets his hands dirty in the earth as he forms the first man. And notice what he does. He first makes a body and then he gives it life by breathing the breath of life into his nostrils. So the man was first an inanimate body, a dead, soulless species, before he became a living person with a soul given to him by God. This means that any form of evolution or theistic evolution is faulty because Adam was not alive before he had the breath of life breathed into him. Before God entered into a covenant relationship with Adam, he was not in existence as a living creature. Chapter 1, verse 24, tells us that before Adam was created, there were living creatures in the animal kingdom. And if Adam was taken from the animal kingdom, if he was some kind of hominid, some kind of Neanderthal farmer, then he was already living. But chapter 2, verse 7, is very clear. Adam became Uh, a living creature. In other words, Adam didn't come swinging out of the trees in middle Africa 10,000 years ago. He came out of the dust of the earth about 6,000 years ago in somewhere in Mesopotamia. 
So that's part one of the story of the universe. In the beginning, on day six, God made a man. Uh, Part two, God made a garden temple paradise. God made a garden temple paradise, verses 8 to 14. Verse 8 and 9 describe the garden, and then verse 10 to 14 provide a wee bit of an excursus on the river flowing out of Eden. So all of these details present us with a garden paradise that actually functions like a temple. Now let me show you how I'm getting there. Some of you are thinking wonderful things in the Bible. He sees some put there by God, some put there by him, uh, by me. Uh, But this is actually going to, hopefully you'll see here, there's the construction of a garden temple paradise. Uh, First, the garden is a symbol of Paradise, verse 8 and 9. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the garden the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, the word Eden means delight, it was a kind of paradise. So the garden's name is paradise. And notice it is a garden of Eden in the east of Eden. So the garden is smaller than Eden. Okay, so Eden was this vast territory and the garden is planted in Eden, in the east of Eden. Okay, the idea of paradise is also conveyed by the fact that it contained every tree that is pleasing to the eye and tasty for food. And most importantly, in the middle of the garden was the tree of life, along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the garden that has every tree that's pleasing to the eye and the tree of life in the middle is a symbol of paradise. It symbolizes where you can have eternal life. Um, The second thing that garden symbolizes is life, eternal life. The tree of life is in the middle, verse 9. It's placed in the east of Eden. Um, the east was seen as the source of life because that's where the sun rose from. And you'll see in verse 10 that a river flows out of Eden. Well, in the ancient Near East, rivers were seen as the source and sustenance of life. So we have three symbols of life connected to the garden, the tree of life in the middle, uh, the geography in the east where the sun rises, and uh, a river which is the source of life. And notice that the source of life, this river, flows into the garden from Eden, which is a delight, a paradise. And then from the garden, it divides into four rivers that irrigate four regions. The Pishon irrigates Havilah, which some think is perhaps Egypt. The Gihon irrigates Cush, which some think is Ethiopia. And these two rivers uh, are two regions unknown to us today, Havilah and Cush, but people think it's Egypt and Ethiopia. The Tigris irrigates Assyria, modern-day Syria, and then the Euphrates, which irrigates Syria and Iraq. So what is this picture? It is the picture of a river in Eden flowing through the garden and then dividing out into the then-known world. It covered the then-known world. In other words, Eden was the source of life for the world. And that 
source of life was mediated through the Garden of Eden. It had to go through Eden, and then it, me- then it um, split into four rivers that irrigated the then known world. So life from Eden to the world was mediated through this garden paradise. So the garden is a symbol of life. And third, the garden is a temple. Uh, The garden is described in terms that are picked up later in relation to the temple. Uh, So when you get to Leviticus and uh, Exodus uh, from chapter 25 to 40 and then the book of Leviticus and even in Numbers, uh, you have descriptions of the temple, which when you read them, you start to think there are echoes of this in Eden. So let me uh, show you what I mean. Uh, Remember that keep in mind the seed form, that here we have the temple in seed form. We have the DNA of the temple. Uh, Think about what we have here in Genesis 2. We have three regions of the world. We have the world, we have Eden, and then we have a garden in Eden. So you have three regions, three territories, which is reflected in the tabernacle and the temple. You have the outside courtyard in the tabernacle and temple, which represented the Gentiles. They could come into that area. Then you had the holy place, which is like the Garden of Eden. And then you had the most holy place, which is like Eden, off in the west. Okay, so you have Eden, then the garden, then you have the world. And that structure is exactly the same as the tabernacle and temple structure later on in the Bible. And notice in chapter 3, verse 24, that the entrance to the garden is in the east. And that's uh, the direction in which the tabernacle and temple faced in the Old Testament. It faced east. The only entrance into the temple was from the east. Uh, All tabernacles, all temples in the ancient Near East faced north, but Israel's faced east. You also have the angels, the cherubim, in chapter 3, verse 24, that stand guarding the entrance to the east with flashing swords. And what do you have on the curtains of the temple, Um, on the tabernacle and in the temple? You have angels, cherubim, are stitched into the curtain. Okay, so again, they're on the east side. The other reason why I think the garden is a temple is that it is in a mountainous area. Have you ever thought of that, that Eden was on a mountain? Um, We know that from Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14, tells us that Eden was a mountain. And we get the hint of that here since we know that a river flows out of Eden. Now, where do rivers originate? Not down in the valley, but up in the mountains, water flows downhill. And we also know that God presences himself here in Eden in chapter 3, verse 8. He walks in the garden. It's a habitual practice. And he walked in the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, the materials connected to this river in verse uh, 11 and 12 of gold, bedelium, and onyx. Those are the materials used in the priest's garments later on in the temple. Uh, Solomon's temple was filled with trees reflecting the Garden of Eden. The golden lampstand in the temple was, uh, had seven branches, and it was like a tree. It looked like the tree of life. And in verse 15, uh, where it says that the Lord God 
took the man and put him in the garden. The word put is literally rested him. He not arrested, but rested him in the garden. And that verb is used of God placing the furniture in the temple. Uh, the priests, sorry, putting the furniture in the temple. They rest the furniture in the temple. And then the verbs to work and to keep in verse 15 that describe Adam's job, they are used of the priests in the temple. They are to work the temple and to keep it. So, do you see all the combinations? Here we have in Genesis 2, in its embryo form, a garden temple. It's the place where God lives, where God communes with mankind. So that's part two of the story. Part one, God made a man. Part two, God made a garden temple paradise. Part three, God made the man to supervise his garden temple paradise under him. God made the man to supervise his garden temple paradise under him, verses 15 to 17. Now, the purpose for which God places the man in the garden is twofold. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and keep it. He is to take care of the garden and he's to protect the garden from unclean things like the priest had to do in the tabernacle. And what animal, <clears throat> what was one of the animals that was unclean? Uh, snakes, serpents, they were unclean. So the priest was to guard the garden temple from anything that was unclean. Another way of saying this is that Adam was to be the supervisor of God's special place. He was to be the priest king of Eden, if you like. Uh, he was lord and king of Eden, but he was not an independent lord, as verse 16 and 17 make clear. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, there are different interpretations about what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolizes. Some think it symbolizes total knowledge, good and evil being like two parts that make up the whole. Other people think it symbolizes moral autonomy. Uh, good and evil were moral categories that God decides on, not us. In other words, the tree helps to make the distinction between God as creator and man as creature between God the king and God and mankind, his people. Uh, let me give you a picture in your mind that might help here. If you imagine a big circle and a little circle, and in between the big circle and the little circle is a horizontal line. And that horizontal line is like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was there to remind Adam that God is God and he is not God. God is the one who ultimately decides good and evil, not man. <clears throat> and when man tries to traverse that line, that's when man sets himself up as God, as an autonomous being who makes his own rules. Um, tonight, I'm going to deal with the whole issue of same-sex marriage from Genesis. It's a talk called Shameless Sexuality. And uh, that's what's happening. It is man moving himself up above that horizontal line and saying, I will decide how many genders there are. I will decide what constitutes a marriage, not God. 
Okay? And that's what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was doing. It was establishing the order of creation. God is God. Man is not God. The tree was also a probationary test. It was God's way of entering into a covenant with Adam in which Adam was to pass a test of maturity, of godliness. He was to display himself a knowledge of good and evil in not eating from the tree and in obeying God. We know that we'll find out on Sunday morning that he failed the test. If you didn't know that already, you'll find that out on Sunday morning. Uh, But that's also what the tree symbolized. But for now, let's just focus in on the idea that God made Adam to supervise his garden temple paradise under him. Okay, he was God's earthly priest king supervising this garden temple paradise. And then that's part three of the story of the universe. And now here's part four. Uh, God made a woman to help the man supervise his garden temple paradise under him. God made a woman to help the man supervise his garden temple paradise under him. That is under God. Uh, Verses 18 to 25. Adam was formed first from the dust of the earth, but before the close of the sixth day, there was something that was not good. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. Uh, This is uh, relating not just to companionship, though that is certainly true. This is relating to the man's role in ruling the world and keeping the garden. He was not to be alone. It was not good that he was on his own to do the job. And in verse 20, we see that he couldn't find a suitable helper from among the animal kingdom. And so God puts Adam into a deep sleep, does some surgery on him, and takes a rib from Adam, and from the rib he makes a woman. The verb is literally builds a woman. Now, I heard of a man at his wedding who, during the speeches at the reception, turned to his wife and said, you remind me today of a beautiful bridge a beautiful ship that has been built. Uh, You're allowed to laugh because uh, that's not what you call your wife on her wedding day, okay? (laughs) Gentlemen, if you're going to get married, do not call your wife a bridge or a ship that was beautifully built. Uh, Yeah, I laughed at that one. But God says that he built... A woman. Now, why does he use the verb build? Well, again, connecting to the temple, um, that is the verb that's used of God building the temple, of Moses building the temple for him. So this is all to do with temple language. Um, So you can call your wife a temple on the day of your wedding, but not a bridge or a ship. Um, So God builds this woman. He makes a woman fit for Adam. Now think about what's going on here. Adam falls into a deep sleep and from his riven side he receives a bride. God made a woman to help the man supervise his garden temple under him and he received his bride from his side, from his cut side. Okay, so those are the first four parts of the opening story, opening chapter of the history of the universe. Part one, God made a man. 
Part two, God made a garden temple paradise. Part three, God made the man to supervise his garden temple paradise under him. Part four, God made a woman to help the man supervise his garden temple paradise under him. Now, as those four points stand, they're rather matter-of-fact points. They're sort of the bare bones of the opening chapter of the history of the universe. But God didn't give us just sort of a bare-bones story. He gave us a drama uh, with color and layers to it. So let me fill out uh, the color of this story a bit more. Let me put some flesh on the bare bones that we've looked at. And first, let's think a little bit more about the man that God created. And I've already started to hint about some of uh, Adam's role here. But if you take a look at chapter 1, verse 26, it says, Then the Lord God said, uh, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then come with me to chapter 5, verse 1 to 3. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his likeness after his image and named him Seth. So do you see how the image of God is tied to sonship? Seth is Adam's son because he is made in Adam's likeness. Well, so too with Adam. He is made in God's likeness. And therefore, he is God's son. And we know that he is God's son by good and necessary consequence because Luke tells us in his genealogy in chapter 3, verse 38, that Adam was God's son. So Adam was first of all a son. Have you ever thought of Adam as a son of God? Well, that's how the Bible speaks of him. Adam is the first son of God on earth. He wasn't the eternal son of God like Jesus, but he was called a son of God. He was a uh, representative son of God on earth. When God made man from the dust of the earth and created it in his image, he made a son. That was his primary role. Adam was to be God's faithful son on earth to his father in heaven. Now, this idea of sonship can be traced through the Bible. So Adam is God's first son, If you were at seminary or Bible college, we'd say we'd use really fancy language to make it look like we're clever and know what we're talking about. We'd call him the protological son, proto, meaning first. He is the protological son. Sounds very fancy, but all it means is that he was the first son. Israel. Is Israel ever called God's son? Yeah, out of Egypt, I called my son Israel. Exodus chapter 4, 23 and 24, God says to Moses, God says to Pharaoh through Moses, let my son go that he may worship me. So Israel is God's son, and we would call that typological son. Israel is a typological national son. And then anyone else in the Old Testament who's called God's son? King David, King Solomon. Uh, David is called God's son in Psalm 2. I have set my son. Uh, today you have, I have begotten you as my son. I have set you as my king on Zion. So the king of Israel was a son. So he was a typological representative son for the whole of Israel. 
So you have protological son, Adam, typological son, Israel, and then David and Solomon. And then you have Jesus as the eschatological son, the son of the last days, Hebrews 1.1. God has spoken in various ways at various times to his people, but in the last days he has spoken to us by his son, that is, his eternal son. And who is Jesus called in the New Testament? He's called the second and last Adam. He's called the true Israel. He's called great David's greater son. In other words, Jesus is the final, ultimate son of God. But before we get to Jesus, in the story of the Bible, in this seed form here in Genesis 1-3, to we have the first son, and that is Adam. He is God's first son. And as God's son, he was given three roles that were subordinate to his sonship. Number one, Adam was a prophet. He was a prophet. In the Bible, prophets speak God's words to God's people, and that's what Adam was to do. He was to speak God's word to his wife Eve. And we see that he had done that because in chapter 2, verse 16, only Adam receives the command from God. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Well, the you there is singular. Eve was not yet built. Okay, She was not yet made. But Adam was. But then chapter 3, verse 2, the serpent says to the woman, Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree, and we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But God said, Well, where did she hear that from? She heard it from Adam, her husband. Adam mediated God's word to his wife, and in due course he would have done that to his children as well. And in this regard, Adam was a prophet. He was to think God's thoughts after him. He was to speak God's words to God's people. And this means that in the fall, in Genesis 3, Adam's failure, one of his first failures, was his failure to do what? To speak. Okay, the serpent comes to the woman and tempts her. And then we find in verse 6 that who was standing by her side all along? Adam. His first failure One of his first failures was that of prophet. He should have spoken up and said, thus says the Lord to the serpent, but he didn't. What is Jesus's first thing when he is tempted by the serpent in the wilderness? What does he say? As it is written, thus says the Lord. He speaks God's word back to the serpent. He acts like a faithful prophet whereas Adam didn't. So that's the first thing Adam is. He is a son who is to function as a prophet. Secondly, he is a son who is to function as a priest. In the Bible, priests mediate between God and the people. They represent the people to God, but they also mediate God to the people. And we've already been given hints of how Adam was a priest. Remember, Eden was a temple area, and he was placed in it rested in it like the priests were with the furniture and he was to guard and keep the temple and one of the things he was to keep it from was unclean things and we know later on in the bible that the serpent 
The snake is an unclean animal. So Adam was a priest in Eden. He was the priest, prophet priest of the Garden of Eden. And as priest, he was to mediate life from Eden to the rest of the world. The, the way in which the blessing of God in Eden would get to the world was through Adam. And thirdly, Adam was a king. Adam was a king. He was to rule the world, have dominion over everything. And that rule was to commence in God's, in God's garden temple paradise in Eden. So let me just recap and draw those colorful descriptions of Adam together. Adam was God's son. And as God's son, he was to play three roles, prophet, priest, king. As God's son, he was to work and keep God's garden temple and mediate blessing to the world. In other words, in the beginning, God established a kingdom. God established a kingdom. Here's the drama of the story of the universe. In the beginning, God established a kingdom in Eden. His son, Adam, was established as the prophet, priest, king, and he was to extend God's kingdom to the rest of the world. The world was perfect, but the whole world was not yet Eden. And Adam was called to Edenize the world. And in order to do that, God put his son into a deep sleep and from his riven side gave him a bride. And remember, all this happened on the sixth day, and then came the Sabbath. So, adding all that together with the chronology of Genesis 1, here's the story of the universe in a single sentence. God's kingdom in a new creation under his son and bride awaiting a Sabbath rest. There's the whole story of the Bible in a nutshell. God's kingdom in a new creation under his son and bride awaiting a Sabbath rest. That's how the Bible begins. That's the history of the universe. That's the story of the heavens and the earth. God's kingdom in a new creation under his son and bride awaiting a Sabbath rest. That's the seed of the whole story Bible. And think about how it comes to full blossom in Revelation 21 and 22. What does it end with? God's kingdom in a new creation under his son and bride, enjoying a Sabbath rest. There's the beginning and the end of the Bible story. And in between, it's about watching that seed grow from a seed to a shoot, to a small plant, into a mature tree in full blossom. And Genesis 1 to 2 is that seed. It contains all the key information for the rest of the Bible story to develop. God's kingdom in a new creation under his son and bride awaiting a Sabbath rest. Come with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And let me show you how Paul reads the story of the Bible like this. Ephesians 5. And, um, and verse 32 and 33. He's just expounded um, what marriage is and what he expects of wives and husbands. And then we'll begin verse, uh, let's begin verse 29, <clears throat> uh, verse 28, sorry. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now notice, where's he quoting? Genesis 2.24. And then he says of Genesis 2.24, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that the mystery of a man and a woman in union together, refers to Christ and his church. You see that? How does Paul read Genesis 2, 24? He says that it is about Christ and his church. Adam falling into a deep sleep as the son of God and receiving from his riven side a bride. It's, a, it's an image of Christ and his church. Genesis 2 is about a son and his bride mediating blessing to the world. It's about a son and his bride extending God's kingdom to the rest of the world. It's about God's kingdom and a new creation under his son and bride awaiting a Sabbath rest. And brothers and sisters, we are that bride of God's son. Not Adam, the first son, but of Adam, the second and last, Jesus Christ. We are the bride of God's son, who mediates blessing to the world. We're the bride of God's Son who helps extend his kingdom across the world. We're the bride of God's Son who prays with him, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We are the bride because God sent his Son into a deep sleep and from his riven side came his bride. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, majestic story of your kingdom and a new creation under your son and bride awaiting a Sabbath rest. And we ask that this weekend you would open our minds to this beautiful panoramic vista of the story of your kingdom. And we pray you would help us to see our place in that. And most of all, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ at the center of all of it. So we thank you for him, who is your eternal son, who is the second and last Adam, the true Israel, great David's greater son, and the son who died for us and from his side came his bride. We thank you for all of these things, and we ask you to receive our praise and thanks in his name who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever praised, world without end. Amen.